It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Abergan. I was planning to take this week off because we have a special series coming up soon, but I think it's important to replay a bit of our conversation about police violence that I did last year. For those of you who may not have heard it or want to hear it again. Twice so far this week, we've woken up to national news of a black man shot to death by a police officer. In Baton Rouge, Alton Sterling was shot six times while pinned to the ground by two police officers. In Minneapolis, during a traffic stop for a broken taillight, Philando Castile was shot and killed while still in the driver's seat of his car. Some of both of those incidents were caught on videotape in the case of Castile. His death was streamed live to Facebook by his girlfriend, who was sitting in the passenger seat. Her young daughter was in the back seat and witnessed the event. Details from both incidents are still emerging. We don't know everything. But one thing we do know is that when it comes to police shootings, data can be very murky. Different police departments keep different kinds of data about these incidents. There are different rules in different states about how the information is collected and coded and stored and shared. It's hard to get even a comprehensive set of facts to start the conversation when it comes to police violence. So as we process another series of high-profile shootings and acknowledge the ongoing crisis of gun violence in this country, I thought it might be useful to hear again from Samuel Sinyangwe. He's an activist and data scientist who has worked on a number of projects related to this issue. And last summer, I spoke to him about MappingPoliceViolence.org, which is his attempt, along with others, to gather comprehensive information about who has been killed by police in the United States. Samuel is part of a larger network of activists trying to get this information. He works very closely with the well-known activist DeRay McKesson. Again, this is about 15 minutes of our conversation from last summer, so some of the stats you'll hear are about a year old, but many of the challenges remain. A couple of things that have changed, the Department of Justice has furthered their efforts to get more comprehensive data by setting standards at the federal level. These are starting slowly to trickle down to individual police forces. And Samuel's work has continued as well. One of his big focuses now, something he was just starting when we spoke last summer, is on police union contracts. It's sometimes very hard to hold police accountable after a shooting, and it's often due to obscure-seeming clauses in the union contracts. Some contracts prevent police officers from being interrogated immediately. In some areas, officers are allowed to see reports and information about an incident that civilians aren't. Many jurisdictions leave the final disciplinary decision up to the police department rather than an independent body. Many of these items are deep inside a police contract, and they're hard to track. They're worded differently in different cities. So Samuel and his team are trying to gather the data, standardize it, and compare what's in different contracts around the country. Anyway, like I said, we were planning to take this week off, but I've been thinking a lot about Samuel's work in these moments. So I encourage you to check it out and listen to our interview if you haven't already. I'll play that uninterrupted in a minute, but first, a word from this week's sponsor. What's the Point is brought to you by Texture, the app that has completely reimagined magazines, giving you the articles and stories you really want all in one place, plus interactive features, videos, and recommendations just for you. 
I've been using the Texture app for my evening reading, which usually consists of me getting through about one or two paragraphs before I fall asleep, but I've been falling asleep to all sorts of great new titles. Obviously, Texture has the magazines I love, like The New Yorker, or Rolling Stone, or ESPN the magazine, but I recently read a great article about sharks in National Geographic. I've been checking out Bloomberg Business Week and The Hollywood Reporter. There are hundreds and hundreds of titles right there for you. And one cool part is that the Texture editorial team sees what I'm reading and starts to recommend content for me every day that I might not have otherwise seen. Right now, Texture is offering a free trial when you go to texture.com slash point. You'll gain immediate entry when you download the app to all of the top magazines, including back issues and bonus video content. Start binge reading for free on your phone or tablet right now when you go to texture.com slash point. That's texture.com slash point. Now, part of my show on police violence, which again was recorded last August. Samuel Singyangwe is a data scientist and policy analyst in the Bay Area, and he's one of the activists behind the site MappingPoliceViolence.org. There are these government efforts to change laws and gather better data, but in the meantime, there are the more crowdsourced efforts like Samuel's. He begins by merging existing databases and then tries to fill in the gaps. That usually starts with a search of local media reports that come out after someone's been shot. But that's often not enough either, and he needs to keep digging. Oftentimes, the media would not report the race of the victim, although sometimes they would have a short you know, local news clip that would show the neighborhood and some of the, they would interview the family. And so you could um, approximate based on that. But the most, um, the primary source that we really used to fill in the gaps around race were basically searching the person online, uh, the name of the person, seeing if they had a Facebook profile um, that had obviously their name and same uh, city or location. Um, and you, when you look at their profile and their timeline, um, you can actually see it cut off at the time that uh, they were killed by police. And oftentimes there will be um, friends and family commenting and leaving, um, you know, notes about that person. Uh, another source was obituary, um, where you can see, you know, the person died on this date. They have the same name in the same city. Um, and then through that process, usually there'll be a picture of them um, or extra clues in terms of who the person's family, uh, immediate family was that we could then use a follow-up search um, to help approximate the race. And so those are two of the main ways of um, coding for race among those records. The last one, which was the third method, was by looking at criminal records databases. So um, many of these folks had a previous criminal record, and in these databases, uh, you could see either a mugshot or uh, both a mugshot and actually uh, racial identification uh, of that person. Having to go to all of those Facebook pages and see them cut off at a certain date or read the obituaries must have just been heartbreaking work. It was extremely heavy, um, extremely heavy work, uh, but it was necessary uh, in order to really pull out and, and be able to identify uh, what's been going on in terms of race and police violence in this country. When you go to your website, mappingpoliceviolence.org, you see some of those trends presented. That is that is the goal of this project to to some extent is to make a, a rhetorical point and to present these trends. Want to talk about some of the trends that emerged and some of the mapping that you're doing? First of all, you know, the scale of 
uh, police killings is on a level that, you know, before August 9th, we really didn't know about. Uh, so, for example, we know that about three people are killed by police every day, uh, and uh, one black person is killed by police almost every day. So every it, it ranges between every 27 hours and every 29 hours, depending on the year. Um, I think another big crucial piece to this is the fact that police killings have been fairly constant um, over time, at least going back to 2013, which is as far as our data goes back. There are about 1,140 people killed by police in 2013, about 1,170 people killed in 2014. Uh, and so far this year, it's really on track to be a comparable uh, number of current trends continue. Um, so that's another thing to think about, the fact that this has been going on for a long time. What is new is that people are starting to pay attention. The videos are starting to shed light uh, on the context in which this occurs and the circumstances in which this occurs. Uh, so those are two key findings from a high level. I think, you know, digging deeper and trying to examine these things by race, you really find that, you know, black folks are three times more likely to be killed by police. They're more likely to be unarmed um, when they're killed by police. I wonder from a presentation standpoint, how you square the tension between trying to offer higher level statistics and trends, but also tell a individual's story and honor an individual who had their life uh, taken from them. So it, it really is both, right? We want to tell the truth um, in different ways to appeal to different audiences. And I think some people are going to um, particularly resonate with the stories and from an emotional level of what's happening to these individuals and other people are going to look to statistics uh, and trends uh, to give them a sense of what's going on. And so we really want to do both. And so what we do is um, we highlighted the stories of over a hundred unarmed black people killed by police last year. Uh, and these really, you know, going to you know, have the picture of the person, a long description of what happened, um, their name, you know, many of them leave behind, you know, children or loved ones, and so we mentioned that as well. And so I think, you know, we want to make sure that we're respectful of the, of the fact that this is, these are not just numbers. Each number uh, reflects a human being, a life that was lost. Uh, and they have families and they have communities that they are supporting, that they were supporting and that they were a part of. And so, you know, police violence is much broader than just the individual who was killed. Uh, it is the trauma that that causes uh, for everybody who was watching, whether in person or on video, uh, for the community. Um, and indeed for the country. Have you encountered resistance to these stats? Are there people out there who dispute them? Actually, no, we haven't. Um, I think people are receptive to this information. I think they get it now. We've seen it be reinforced by other um, databases using similar methods and similar data sources. So we've seen it from, you know, the, uh, the Guardian's database. We've seen it from the Washington Post database. They're all saying the same thing. And they're finding that, um, you know, that black folks are more likely to be killed by police and that police killings are happening at a scale at which um, the federal government certainly wasn't telling. Is the Ferguson Police Department one that was keeping good data? Absolutely not. So if the Michael Brown killing had not gotten the attention it got in the first six to 12 hours, what would have happened to to that story? It would have been another one of the um, over 1,000 stories. Uh, of police killings every year that does not get uh, major national media coverage. So, um, you know, what was particularly alarming and shocking looking through all of these stories and these examples um, was that, you know, really there only have been a handful of these that have 
reached a level of national media attention that folks really remember their names and have seen the video uh, or know about what happened. Um, but there are thousands um, in this database that folks don't know. And a lot of those stories are similar as well. And by pulling out those similarities, we can start to learn and examine um, some of the trends in terms of how people are being victimized by police, uh, trends in terms of where this is happening um, and what needs to change. This was a project, even though it's a data project, it was a project really born of protest, right? So this really started um, with a series of questions that we couldn't find the answers to. Um, questions that were so essential to activism, to uh, making the case for uh, systemic change. And those questions were, you know, how prevalent are police killings in America? Um, where are the places where there are hotspots of police violence? And where are the places that may be models in terms of um, being, police being able to do their job without killing people um, and that we can learn from, we can learn sort of what's working. Uh, and then the other piece is around, you know, what, how does being black in America impact your chances of being killed by police, um, which has been so central to the protest movement. Uh, and so, you know, we couldn't answer those questions without using the data. And so we had to collect it and analyze it ourselves. And I think the last point is around accountability. Uh, now that we have the data, it really is now possible to hold policymakers and police chiefs accountable to actually reducing and ultimately uh, eliminating um, the number of police killings that are happening. You, you mentioned the national movement. You mentioned trying to insert this into the conversation. So that gives us a chance to move to the next stat that you presented, which is 32 million more people dissatisfied with racism in America. Where does that number come from? So this number comes from, I got it off a recent Reuters article, which looked at a Gallup survey, uh, which asked the question, are you satisfied with the way blacks are treated in U.S. society? And they asked this question a couple of years ago, and then they asked the question again uh, in July, and they found 13% fewer people were satisfied, 13% uh, fewer American adults. And so that basically is a calculation looking at the population of U.S. adults, uh, and then 32 million is 13% uh, of that. And so that is the change that we've seen, really, um, in large part as a result of the movement and as a result of these issues being put uh, into the center of political and national discussion. I don't know exactly the, the right way to phrase this question, but does that count as a win for this movement? I think a win, it's hard to define um, if that counts as a win. I think ultimately the win is, you know, for police to stop killing us. But I think that counts as progress. It, it shows that um, protests are effective at really changing public opinion, at making uh, a large sets of society uh, aware and conscious of what's happening. Uh, and that is the first step to putting pressure on elected officials, putting pressure on media and putting pressure on other institutions to really respond to those opinions. Is there one force or one jurisdiction that you can point to and say this is an effective model? So I think overall there is not a police department that at least that we found that incorporates all of you know the recommendations from the president's task force report or from um, sort of the policy advocacy community in general what we'd like to see. But there are examples in terms of being open with data. You know, you know, New York Police Department um, makes available data on all stops and frisks um, that the ACLU has used very powerfully 
to actually hold them accountable and actually change that policy. We've seen, um, you know, the police department in Dallas, um, Dallas Police Department actually recently, in response to the protests and the demand for accountability, has posted all officer-involved shootings uh, online, uh, and it's really in real time. So a couple of days after it happens, you can see, you know, each case of an officer-involved shooting and the information about what happened. I think those are good examples. Um, but again, I think policy isn't uh, policy alone isn't going to get us to a place where we're ending police killing. Uh, that policy has to be enforced, and the culture of police departments have to be embedded with that, that, those accountability measures. Have you heard from police officers in response to your project? Uh, not so much. I think you know the next phase of this really is to put this data in front of them uh, and hold them accountable. I think right now, you know, our primary audience really is uh, you know folks who are activists, folks who are trying to change um, policies and practices through advocacy. Um, but I think there are folks in police departments that may be allies in this work, that may actually feel like change needs to happen and need a language and need the data to show why. And I think you know we need to be engaging them as well. How do you imagine an average cop, if there is such a thing in Cleveland or, or New York or Orlando, would react to visiting your website? I think, you know, I think they would feel like they are um, being grouped in a category with uh, what they call bad apple police officers. And I think this really isn't about individual officers. This is about the systems in place uh, that allow police violence to take place and allow it to happen with impunity. And I think that it's important to distinguish that from the individuals operating in those systems uh, because, you know, they're being trained to shoot to kill. In most cases, you know, they're being, uh, they aren't being tested for implicit racial bias or made aware of those biases or how to combat them. Uh, and so really they aren't being equipped with the tools that they need to actually perform in the way that they should be performing in the community. And so I think that's the problem of, uh, police chiefs, of, uh, broader city policymakers, mayors, uh, council members, and then moving all the way up to state and federal government. And so, you know, it's all part of a system that needs to change. That's Samuel Singh Yangwei. His sites are mappingpoliceviolence.org, and his work around union contracts is at checkthepolice.org. Just this week, they rolled out some new data and charts about the nature of police contracts. So go check that out. Thanks for listening. Stay in touch. As I mentioned, we have a special series of shows around a similar topic coming up soon, so keep your eye out for that. For now, my name is Jody Abergan, and I'll see you soon.